Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, the sound you hear is a buzzsaw ripping through a painting of George Washington chopping down cherry trees. It's time for Professor Buzzkill, busting myths and taking names. Yes, Buzzkillers, it's me. It's Professor Buzzkill here, busting myths, taking names. And fortunately, we have on the line via the internets one of the more important historians in American history right now, Dr. Sarah Giorgini. And her new book, Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family, has been tearing up the internet and tearing up the discussion boards in the history world. She's followed by what I've, uh, I'm now part of, something called the History Paparazzi, because she's brought so many uh, new insights and, in, and, and influential interpretations to American history. So the, first of all, let me, before I stop, uh, before I go on forever as some sort of, again, paparazzi, let me thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here and to talk a little bit about the Adamses and rediscovering their role in American history. Well, I think it is a rediscovery. And this is what's so central about the book is because, you know, so many people, when they think of John Adams and then John Quincy Adams, and, and we'll get to the even the, the further descendants later, they think all politics, politics, politics. It's Adams versus Jefferson or Adams versus – it's all about the – there isn't very much about their religious lives, let you sh yet you show how central that is to, to generations of them. Yeah, I think it's really an untapped realm for scholars who are looking at the founding era, but also looking at some bold-faced names that we find to be real familiar figures – and making those familiar figures a little foreign all over again, thinking about mm -hmm. how they used religion, whether in their public lives or in their personal practices, and what role we can see religion playing in American culture if we hold their lives up over the span of 300 years. You say that, you know, if we, if we start off with John Adams, he mused that it was religion that shaped his family fortunes and young America's future. And again, that puts a whole new sort of lens on that period. That's the manuscript that hooked me to the whole project was reading yeah. John Adams' letter, pinning his family's fortunes from the Puritan era all the way through his own, a pretty, a pretty large chunk of time when he was writing that in 1813, 1812, 1813. 
And I just thought, I wonder if he's right. You know, John Adams is throwing me a lead <laughs> and I mm. want to follow it and see if his conjecture about the significance of religion in American culture in this particular family, if that has merit. And so I, I really dove in based on that single letter. And I thought I was writing a very straightforward book about religion in the founding era. But then I tipped back toward the 17th century in England to look at the Adamses who came over. And then I couldn't help but tip forward into the 19th and 20th century to see how it all played out. Right. And that's one of the things that makes it so compelling is that you follow that all the way through. Well, let's tell the Buzzkillers, and by let's, I mean you, tell the Buzzkillers uh, what was the sort of Adams family uh, tradition in, in religion? So if we look at the first English Adamses who come from the southern part right. of England, we know very few things about them for sure. I can tell you that John Adams' progenitors brewed really good ale <laughs> at a library and they had land. Those three things are borne out in the manuscript sources that we have, which are fairly rare. But you know, tides can turn, harvest can fail, the Church of England can change course, and all of those three things happened. So Henry Adams, the original Adams who comes over, has a series of bad harvests. He finds that the local Church of England practices change and they become very constricting. And he sees opportunity in the new world and comes here to what's, you know, the Quincy, Plymouth, Massachusetts Bay area. So their practices are to dissent, to protest from mainstream church practice. And when they see something that they don't like that the mainstream church is doing, they leave. And so this hmm. tradition that John and Abigail Adams and that whole generation will later point to during the revolutionary era, they'll say, look at our Puritan forebears. When something went wrong institutionally, whether it was a church or a government that we saw the seeds of corruption in, we got out, we protested, we dissented. So they build on this story. It's really this great kind of history that they're weaving for themselves while they're trying to plan out how to create a new country. So that story, that origin story of, you know, religion and politics and what it means in the old world is so important to John and Abigail. And they write about it quite a bit. John Adams is never quite sure where he's from in England. He and his son, John, mm. disagree over what part of England they're from. They claim all different kinds of genealogical connections. It's really fascinating. But they are sure of one thing, which is when people's rights are violated, when their worship practices are threatened, they protest, they dissent, they stand up to authority, and they topple it. And that's a really important idea that roots in the 18th century American consciousness, largely thanks to these stories of, you know, John Adams kind of ancestors. So we can pretty definitely say that the Adams were Puritans. The Adams, certainly Henry Adams that came over and then at least the immediate descendants. Yeah, so they start out that way for sure. The right. best way to think about them is dissenters, I think, in general overall. Okay. Started writing this book, I thought, okay, this is gonna seem a lot like the standard survey story that you get in any history of American religion class. I'm going to have Puritans right up until the turn of the 18th century. Then those Puritans are going to become, you know, capital C Congregationalists. By the end of the 18th, early 19th century, they're going to be Unitarians. Then by the end of the 19th century, they're going to be 
kind of spiritual questers. They're going to be interested in Catholicism and in Western religion and stuff like that. And to a degree that held true, but what didn't hold true was kind of the climactic events that changed their thinking about religion. Like I went into the Adams papers, a quarter of a million manuscript pages, thinking for sure these people who talk about everything all the time, we're going right, to yeah. about big events. Like I thought, aha, evangelicalism, where's that story? I'm going to get great quotes about, you know, the first and second great awakenings did not happen. That's not how they see it. What I didn't expect to find was instead conversations about Native American spirituality between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. So the hinges kind of fell off my story at some point because the family was showing me that when you narrate the story of American religion, it can be very different from family to family. And that that was just a gold mine. Realizing I had to rejigger my sources. I had to look at local history because that was in some ways more significant than what was going on elsewhere in the country or anything that was being published. And I had to throw one really big thing out the window, which was theology. Over the course of the generations, the Adamses don't care much about theology. They care about religion as a part of culture and as a way to understand other cultures. And so that was a big shift. I thought, you know, I'm gonna get all these great juicy theological kind of letters. Didn't happen, but I did get all of these great insights on how to use religion and how religion is changing the country as the country evolves. And that was that was just really fascinating. So it was the classic story of you think you're writing one story. Right. <laughs> and the sources kind of nudge you and nudge you and then they push you all the way into writing something just so fun and so interesting and so new well and it's it's so good to hear you know that like we always try to emphasize you know that the evidence drives the story whenever whenever you're writing history even though in the current political context people seem to think that all historians go in with a a predetermined mindset and 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 make the evidence fit their fit that mindset, but they don't. So so, uh, how how was John Adams deal with this religion in culture aspect when he's becoming when he's become an adult and he's started to become active in Massachusetts politics? I mean, if if he's not gone down the, down the theological road, then and, and he's gone down the religion as part of culture, religion as part of society road. How do you see that coming through in his work? Well, the first really big sign of Providence intervening in young John Adams' life is that he goes to Harvard planning to be a clergyman and mm -hmm. soon realizes, thanks to kind of a very messy pamphlet war back at his home church, that clergy aren't treated spectacularly well in Massachusetts. And he thinks far better and friendlier for me to step in and be a lawyer. So he thinks mm -hmm. law in a way that we would do well to remember how 18th century Americans thought about law, which is it's a spiritual corrective. It's a way to mend society's flaws. There's kind of a divine mission baked into it, which is really interesting. So the first thing is his choice of profession. He's not a clergyman, but he sees a way to incorporate spiritual lessons and healing in the work that he does, which is kind of interesting, I think, that he yeah. pulls that off. So that's the first thing he does. The second thing, and this gets more to his political voice as it matures, which is what you're asking about, he leverages that Puritan history I mentioned to great effect. He knows how to wield his pen in writing 
numerous pieces in newspapers in the 1760s and 1770s. He knows how to weave in ideas of a providential design, which is a huge idea for early Americans who are struggling to create a country from scratch. This idea that God intervenes in human events and helps along people like the United States or what will become the United States. He's very good at adopting that providentialist tone in his writing and communicating that with people. So that's kind of the second thing that he does is put together the political goals of the colony that wants to be a nation and a language that they're very familiar with. So I think in those two ways, his choice of profession and his political writings, you start to see it very much. And then finally, of course, it's how he raises his family. So, mm -hmm. you know, he's going to create this family that is of Christian statesmanship, essentially. I mean, that's what he's trying to kind of foster, especially with John Quincy Adams. But when the revolution hits, I mean, he's off and away, right? And Abigail's at home with several young children. And they interpret every kind of event that unfolds. They do it in Christian language. And what I mean by that is they talk about providence. They talk about, um, they'll use a Bible verse to describe what's going on in the Battle of Bunker Hill. They will thread their letters with, you know, bits of scripture and kind of prayers. And so you see this kind of personal level of how he uses religion to interpret unfolding events. It's a coping mechanism for sure. Um, right. It's a very therapeutic way of living through a time of just constant upheaval. I mean, we've been through so much, all of us during this pandemic, and I always flash back to, you know, Boston going through smallpox epidemic and revolution. And we, we forget how much people are going through at that time. And for him, religion is an outlet and a haven to talk about it. Yeah. And we, we tend to forget, of course, that, you know, when we talk about the American Revolution, people think of 1776 and then the immediate years follow. But if you take really from 1763 until the time the Constitution is ratified, you're talking about almost, well, 20 years-ish of more or less constant stress. Yeah, I think that Confederation period, the 1780s, are a wild and fascinating time to study. I encourage anyone listening, if you're looking for a great, you know, next book or dissertation topic, or you just want to read up on something, go forth and study the 1780s, because it, it is such a fascinating period. And John Adams is like many of the kind of famous founders that we often think of, it's not in the country for most of it. Yeah. Um, you know, Jefferson, Franklin, we forget, they're not right here. They're an ocean away trying to get guns and funding and troops and really intellectual support for their cause, right? So it's, it's interesting to think about kind of their perspective. So it is not only just a long revolution as you've just beautifully laid out, it's a global revolution, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about how it, it kind of reverberates around the world is an, an interesting thing to consider. And w when Adams is abroad, w w when uh, the Confederation period is going on, and, and for our non-American buzzkillers, we should uh, say that, you know, of course, after the Revolutionary War, there's this period where the United States is operating under, under something called the Articles of Confederation, which then doesn't work for various reasons and is always seen historically as this kind of failed attempt and, and that almost as if it, you know, had to be corrected. But, but, 
But Adams and Jefferson and everyone else at Franklin, everyone else at the time don't know that yet, right? So how does, when Adams is getting this news back from home about all these problems, and he's having to deal with this also as a diplomat, other countries are looking at him saying, well, wait a minute, your new country's not working very well. What's going on? How, how does he see Providence working through those events? He clings to it as best he can. Yeah. And he finds ways uh, first when he is in France, certainly when he is in London, to kind of cozy up to anyone with similar religious beliefs. It's a great diplomatic pretense, especially when yeah. the British court of St. James, right? So he's there in the mid 1780s for the most part. You can't imagine anything more awkward than that first meeting between John Adams and George III um, that took yeah. place in the King's bedchamber. I mean, here is a radical revolutionary who most certainly would have been hung. <laughs> Instead, he's handing off his credentials you know, to kind of say, hi, I'm the ambassador from a new nation. And it's a remarkable meeting, but he gets a pretty frosty reception overall, the diplomatic circle. What he and Abigail come to find out is that they gravitate toward dissenting ministers at their dinner table. So when they enter right. the Grosvenor Square, they're bringing in Joseph Priestley, they're bringing in Richard Price. They're really kind of befriending people who have been friends of American liberty, but who in their religious beliefs may be at the outer edges still of kind of mainstream teaching, right, in Church of England. So these are people who believe, you know, you know, God kind of lays out a path to salvation and you exercise or reject the free will to, to grab onto it. And this is a pretty, pretty outer edge idea. Um, this is very close to Unitarianism, of course, but that hasn't yeah. come back to American shores. So it's always interesting to see, you know, who's at their dinner table, who they're talking to, what kind of religious ideas they'd be exchanging. And this is part of household gods to kind of go into the home, to think about religion as a force in culture that exists outside places of worship or right. what happens to your religion between Sundays. So that's, that's mm -hmm. something that I found fascinating. They spend a lot of time traveling the Adamses. And, you know, if they can strike up a conversation with anyone in a carriage on a steamboat on horseback, it's generally a clergyman. Like it passes the time is what I've noticed. Wow. You see it in kind of the, the conversations they have the letters they exchange. They also try very hard when they're in the Adamses, both when they're in, in London and in Paris to, to sample other religions, like to try out, you know, going to mass at Notre Dame or to try out other forms of maybe Baptist preaching. You know, they're very curious about how religious leaders connect with people and what that can kind of tell them to decode the culture. They also find that in the court in London, they may be nothing else, but they definitely have some kind of loose Protestantism that they can share. Mm -hmm. There's some, some kind of what we call now common core beliefs that they can kind of bring together. So they use that on a couple of levels very effectively. And then then when Adams comes back and, and it's part of the constitution writing or and then eventually becomes president. Uh, have any of these religious discussions or his his 
religious life, if you will, abroad change the way he approaches, for instance, the presidency when he ascends to it in, after Washington? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a really great question. So his idea of approaching the nation's highest office is to do so with all the humility of a Christian statesman, uh-huh. right? This is tricky because he has to follow Washington and Washington is an impossible act oh, to sure, follow. Sure. It's, it's so difficult, but he does not share quite the same faith as Adams does. Adams is, of course, Congregationalist. Washington leans toward Anglicanism. This is Episcopalian at this point. It's interesting to see the shift at the top because what Adams does as president is kind of assume poorly that everyone is going to go along with his brand of New England Christianity. He has always thought kind of as Massachusetts goes, so goes the rest of the nation. This turns out to not be true because he sets up one and then two fast days that kind of use providentialist language to talk about foreign relations with France. And this does not play well with people. Mobs show up at his door, people protest in the streets. If you know something of John Adams, you know his fear, distaste, and loathing Mm. of mob Mm. violence. So this is exactly what he hoped would never happen. And it comes raining down on his head. He later points to this exact moment of calling for fast days in 1798 as the moment that loses him any chance of a second term. And the person he says that to is his successor, Thomas Jefferson, in their retirement. So it's, it's you know, it's one of those, those moments where he assumes that his religion is the same brand as everyone else's. And he uses his presidential privilege to proclaim that fast day in a very kind of high-handed way. And the, the clergy splinter, there's all kinds of sermons and screeds. There's yeah. some really <laughs> wonderful cartoons that are especially snarky <laughs> to look at that, that kind of explode this idea very much so. But what you see in that moment as you move from Adams to Jefferson on that borderline is that there's such an intense blossoming mm-hmm. of religions happening in the United States. It's really of what a hothouse it is for new paths of spirituality springing up all over that people don't have just one regional version of Christianity. There's so many in play. And the second thing that you see is that the president has to kind of harness the right kind of religious language in order to be effective with it. And Adams fails at this task. Whether or not Jefferson does any better, that's a whole separate book. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. But then, if we look at the at the at the next generation, after all, you know, this what's one of the one of the many strengths about this book is you follow through many generations of, of Adamses. John Quincy becomes president. John Adams' son becomes president. Again, many of our foreign buzzkillers won't necessarily know that. First of all, the the religious culture he grows up in. How did that sort of shape the way he approached the presidency? So John Quincy, or as we like to call him here, and he liked to sign his letters, JQA. All right. Okay. <laughs> is the starting starting a president uh, three three uh, letter abbreviation precedent for presidents J JQA LBJ FDR yep. JFK. That's exactly right. He did sign that way too. I have to say. <laughs> I, will, I will pin it on the man himself. So JQA has this extraordinary life. He grows up kind of all over the world in a way that few do. He has his first diplomatic gig, the age of 12, going off to Russia to help Francis Dana seek Russian recognition of 
America from Catherine the Great, which doesn't work out, but he does get to wander through Russia and Sweden and everywhere else and sample religion in places like Leiden. He's really is all over as a teenager um, and finally comes back, swings into Harvard, has kind of the standard Harvard experience where he goes to church just enough. He reads some theology, but as a young man, he's not terribly interested in it. He writes a lot of bad poetry that uses religious language. And I feel comfortable saying that. <laughs> I can yeah. Many years of reading it. Well, you're on a sort of on a first name basis with him. If you can call him JQA, can. you can also critique his poetry. <laughs> he hasn't stopped me yet, but he does grow up all over, and that means he sees a lot of the world's religions sometimes before he's read about them. When he serves as a diplomat again, this time a grown up father, married, mm -hmm. and in St. Petersburg, he really goes wide with looking for foreign faiths. He experiences Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. He actually has his first view of the Catholic baptism while he's there. And this connects to something you said earlier, which is kind of how does all this travel change the Adamses, right? How do they reapproach American religion? For John Quincy Adams, he sees St. Petersburg as just incredibly rich, diverse, and this is interesting, more tolerant than New England. So he's Wow. This idea of like, you know, 19th century Russia for all of its remnants of feudalism still has a more, I think, welcoming religious landscape for him than his native New England. So he's very at home in the world. As he gets older, he certainly continues the poetry. I won't say if it gets better, you'll have to read it yourself. <laughs> but he does so by trying out writing different versions of the Psalms and he really seizes on that idea of Christian statesmanship as something to pursue in his poetry and in his life. Perhaps the biggest thing that, that our listeners will latch onto when, when they get the book is, is then how this helps him or spurs him to be more of an anti-slavery advocate than he might have been otherwise. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, certainly John and Abigail are stridently anti-slavery and they raise their children that way. Right. That does not mean that they do not have comments on race that we might find objectionable in this day and age. That does not mean that they are interested in immediate emancipation for all enslaved people. You know, this is, you kind of have to think back to the period that we're in and the degrees of freedom and unfreedom that they were operating on. All of that said, he is predominantly, I think, known as the congressman who defeats the gag rule, as someone mm. who forward all the petitions that he can. And by the way, the language of petitions that he's presenting, it's extremely religious because a petition always starts, you know, we pray that you. Right, um, right, so right. it's interesting to see that kind of thread continuing. But we turn, I think, more than anything in Household Gods to his diary for a sense of his inner spiritual life. And it's pretty conflicted. Wow. You know, he has a very hard personal life. His wife is often ill. She has many miscarriages. And he himself has a lot of challenges being away from his family as much as he is. And he's very dedicated to the anti-slavery cause at the end of his career. At the end of a very long career, mm -hmm. he really front and if you look at the diary entry where he kind of talks about taking on the Amistad captives case, he is not sure he can pull it off. And 
his health is already failing. He's elderly. He points out that, you know, what can someone like me do? But it's a Christian conscience that moves me to do it. And so he doubles down on this. And you, you see this in scholars' work, this idea of a Unitarian Christian conscience. This is Daniel Walker Howe's work. And it, it, it just really gets embodied, I think, in JQA. He consistently points to religion as his mainstay during that final crusade. Well, uh, we, we uh, spend too much time on, on the big heavy hitters in history, generally speaking. One of the things we like to do in this show is to make sure that other people who are extremely important but aren't discussed enough are then discussed on this show. And it takes almost an American historian or certainly someone who majors in history or studies history in college to know then about Charles Francis Adams and then Henry Adams and then Brooks Adams. But as you show in the book, these are extremely important people who, you know, the, the, the Adams, it seems to me, I'm just guessing off the top of my head here, as a family, a family influence, they last the longest of, of, the, of the founding families. Am I right in thinking that? I mean, the other people, other Jeffersons and, and, and Washington is, of course, more difficult, but, but Jefferson's sort of retreat to the farm and things like that. The Adamses stay in, in, in the public debate for, in the public uh, culture for a long time. That's absolutely right. They are certainly a multi-generational political dynasty. Yeah. That's also what made them pretty darn unpopular for a good <laughs> part of the 19th century, because... What could be worse than something that kind of looked like you were inheriting power, like you were part of a monarchy, like you were a little aristocratic? Right. That's a very un-American look that we're, we're talking about, or at least idealistically so. So they all kind of come forward and enter the political arena, or they become these great cultural critics or you know, scholarly contributors. I do have to confess that Charles Francis Adams, who really has, I think, one major biography to his name by Martin Duberman, he was the chapter that I worried about the most. I think everyone goes in with a chapter where you think, this guy, he might be kind of boring. How am I going to bring something out? Like, I, I had John Quincy Adams, and then the next story was Henry Adams, he of the education. So right. two relatively short in stature people in real life who are intellectual giants. Right. And I thought, how do you squeeze in Charles Francis? And so I was, I was super worried about Charles Francis, I have to say. And it turned out that as I read him, he turned out to be one of my favorites because he was just this melancholy Victorian. Like he perfectly embodied someone who was torn between everything he'd inherited as an Adams and the responsibility of how he was supposed to manifest that in the world. And he very much suffered, I think, from JQA's late in life success, because the deal in the Adams family was one cycles out of the political arena, the next one cycles in. Right. And when JQA decided to go into Congress, that kind of shut down Charles Francis's opportunities to make a big entrance. And it stayed that way for some time. So there was some dissent within the family that was kind of interesting. I found, too, that Charles Francis had this wonderful habit of really being able to travel when and wherever he pleased. By the middle of the 19th century, the Adamses had really solidified the family wealth, which had taken a couple of hits early on in the 19th century. And so really no expense was too much. And he traveled everywhere. He went on these kind of journeys 
to places like Niagara Falls, where he found kind of great spiritual relief. He went out west to meet Joseph Smith and the Mormons. He was, it's kind of the Forrest Gump effect that the Adamses have. They're always kind uh, yeah. of in the right place at the right time. And you think like, oh, you're also here again, <laughs> uh, which is, is fun to read. But he was very consumed with, you know, am I enough? What should I be? Who should I be? And these are questions that to me just sounded so modern to my ears. Yeah. And they were not the kind of deep dive questions that his father or his grandfather would have committed to the page. But Charles Francis did, and his handwriting is exquisite. So. Oh, well, there you go. The, as someone who's, as, as, as you, as someone who's, who's editing the papers, that, that's, that's extremely important. But, but I think what, what you're saying also there, and then Charles Francis's evidence and the, and the residue he leaves behind, the writings he leaves behind, because he's ruminating about these things so much, you're getting to, to really understand and know a lot more about challenges to mid-19th century confidence uh, in, in religion. And of course, he's the one who has to deal with the, the Civil War and how that affects the, the spirituality and the political uh, nature of the country. I think it's also, you mentioned kind of bringing a, a spotlight on lesser known actors. And while they're not lesser known, I'd say it's also interesting to remember the ladies at this point. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Louisa Catherine and Abigail Brooks, the three wives of these men we've been talking about, the religious opportunities and spiritual kind of adventures that they have, they change so much over the generations. You know, whether it's Abigail using the same providentialist language, but also the one who grilled her kids on their Bible verses, right? right. Louisa Catherine is someone who really identifies with Marian ideals in Roman Catholicism, even though she is shows up and goes to the local Episcopal church all the time in Quincy. And then Abigail Brooks is a really interesting person to me because I didn't have much from her on paper. And I was determined to kind of, you know, not just tell the great white men's stories sure, here, but sure, to kind yeah. of bring forward um, what the women were experiencing. And Abigail Brooks has these, these wonderful depictions of church events and religious life in Quincy, Massachusetts that are extraordinary. I mean, there's a, a, a very brief diary entry about a young teenage girl's funeral that is just so evocative and so sensory. And with Abigail Brooks, I was fortunate to think about the material culture uh, that's at the Adams National Park now at National Historical Park in Quincy, they called Peacefield, and to think about, well, where did she display her Bible? Like, was it right out so people could oh, see it? Right, like a yeah. mark of like, hello, we are a religious family, which is what they did. Was it in the way that she, you know, would go to one church and Charles Francis would go to the other. So she might go to an Episcopal church and he would go to a Unitarian church. She would work her father's business connections in the pews for him. And so it's a very clever political and economic tactic to do that. But then they would come together you know, for Sunday lunch with the whole family, which is an interesting idea. I don't think we always consider that men and women may have prayed at different churches. Louisa, mm -hmm. Catherine, and John come from different faith homes. So they're from different denominations. So you have intermarriage between denominations happening. We need to remember that it's such a highly fluid landscape in this period, that late 18th, early 19th century. It's it's not always kind of a couple in lockstep going to the same church. Right, and that right. was 
interesting to me. Well, this is one of the many great strengths of the book, and I'm afraid we're in danger of giving away too much of the plot. We want the buzzkillers <laughs> to get the book. But I have to say that, thankfully, uh, Oxford University Press, through the generosity, sent us a copy to give away to one of our lucky Patreon listeners. So the, uh, the Patreon post will go out, and, and of course, as we always do, send your name back in and uh, we'll throw it in a hat and, and draw it out to, to win this book. Before we go, though, I did want to ask you one question, uh, which is something that our listeners always ask me, and that's, what's it like being steeped in, because, well, well first of all, let's tell the Buzzkillers what your day job is. <laughs> so I am series editor for the papers of John Adams. It's part of the Adams Papers editorial project, and we are based at the Massachusetts Historical Society the nation's oldest historical society here uh. in Boston. And our mission since the 1950s has been to annotate and publish the words of John and Abigail and their descendants. And we do that in three series. We have a diary series where you hear from the Adamses themselves. We have the Adams family correspondence where I think Abigail really is the unrivaled star. And that's kind of the juicy social history of the period. <laughs> And then there's my series, which is the papers of John Adams, his public life, war, peace, everything in between. And we put out about a book a year, and it's usually about yeah. 100 odd documents. So it's it's a constant, constant challenge, which is fun. Well, but what's it like to, uh, people ask you, what is, what's it like to be so immersed in the enormous volume of material that you have? Because... You know, people tend to forget that, the, you know, as I say to my students, there are a lot of people in history who are paying attention and are writing down a lot of their feelings, thoughts, and, and reactions to events. And you're fortunate enough to be surrounded by this enormous archive. You know, do you, do you sometimes feel like you're, you're lost in it and you're swimming? How am I going to possibly get this all into one book or, or, or even into one series of books? You know, it does have kind of a national treasure feel working here from day ah. to day, <laughs> to be truthful. It is amazing to be able to work with original documents all day. If I want to pull a manuscript and see when Jefferson endorsed that he got Adam's letter, it's no problem. It's a few steps away. So that is a great privilege that we have. And really, it's thanks to the library and the conservators who work here and keep everything. Right, right. Again, sort of bringing up again this idea of all the people who actually are involved in in a project. There are lots and lots of them. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic enterprise. It really is. I think the 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 thing that surprises me when you talk to documentary editors right. um, like me, we often flip into the present tense yeah. because we spend all day in letters and it's like JQH says <laughs> that and it just kind of rolls off your tongue before you're thinking about it. So I think there's a great deal of opportunity to piece together a larger story. What you also learn is how to navigate an archive, how to do historical research. And as I mentioned before, you can have a quarter of a million pages and the story is not yeah, going to be yeah. what you think it is. So remember to interrogate an archive, to think about how things were cataloged, when they came here, how they came here, what's missing. So the kind of classic historian advice is to look for the silences in the archive and acknowledge them because the Adamses certainly burned oh, yeah. material. There's items that no longer are. And you really want to think about the lives that people live between mm -hmm. letters. So I spend a 
time thinking like, why is this even a letter? Like, what was the author's intention in sitting down and writing it? Why did they send it to this person? When did they get it? What action was taken? Do they also comment in their diary? Does it show up in the newspapers? So there's a whole world that you have to really manifest from a manuscript. And that's exciting. To well, do. it's also exciting to hear about. And I think that's one of the things I'm learning most about the history of audience out there, the popular history audience, is that they really want to know about the work that uh, the work that people do and how they do it. So it just remains for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fascinating. And to remind the Buzzkillers to get the book, but, but most importantly, say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And uh, remind everyone, of course, that the Buzz, even if, you, even if you don't win the book through our Patreon competition, the book is on the Buzzkill bookshelf, and it's a great read. A great read opened my mind about a lot of a lot of things that I hadn't thought about before. And that we will say to all of you Buzzkillers out there that we will talk to you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.